Good to see everybody. Everybody doing well today? It's great to be here. Again, you know, you see it in these three guys up here. You know, this thing is not just about uh, sitting in a seat on Sunday mornings. It's about having great intentionality uh, to go into whatever your sphere is and to make a difference. Uh, that's what it means to be a child of Abraham. That's what it means to belong to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's what it means to participate in the thing that Christ ignited 2,000 years ago. So thank you to those guys. Uh, you can see we have the communion table set before us as well. At any time today, right while I'm preaching, please feel free uh, to come and take communion. Uh, we're going to be looking at the theme of repentance, and I can't think of a better way to show, not to show, to actually repent, to say, God, I am leaving this. I am burying this. I am laying this down. I am getting off this rotten, deadly path, and I am returning to you. I am returning to your love and your grace and all that you offer me in Christ. So anytime this morning, uh, you can please participate. Okay, anybody know 1 Peter 2 verse 9? I'm not going to rely on Dave Vandervelde unless I have to. Because <laughs> I saw Dave this morning and I already know he knows it. Anybody? 1 Peter 2 verse 9, it's our theme verse this year. Amen. Again, it, it, it comes back to this question. Who are you? What are you doing here? Who are we? What are we doing here? There's no reason why we all can't hide that verse in our hearts. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Because it answers that question, who we are. We are a chosen people to be holy, a holy nation a nation of priests to declare the praises of God of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Um, the desert, we looked at at the beginning of the year, is what God uses to shape us into that people. And some of you this morning, I'm sure, are in the desert right now. And take heart, because God is using that place, that difficulty, uh, that hard season to prepare you, to shape you uh, into being his, part of his people. Um, when God's people forget who we are and why we are here and we get off the path, the prophets. That's the purpose of the prophets. The prophets come in and they speak, thus saith the Lord. And today we're going to look at a prophet that's actually going to get us more into the heart of a prophet reflecting the people of God. We're going to look at Jonah. Uh, so turn in your Bibles to Jonah. I believe it's 751 in a blue Bible. We're not going to read the whole thing <laughs> right now. We should probably, but I'm going to assume that's what you're going to do this week. I'm going to give you enough so that you can go and study it this week. Just a couple of verses, but let's stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 1 and 2 deal with Jonah running from God. Chapters 3 and 4 deal with Jonah actually obeying God and going to the place that God called him to go, to Nineveh. First two verses of chapter one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord 
and headed for Tarshish. And I think a lot of us know how that whole story plays out. This is where you get the story we learned as kids, runs from God, uh, gets in a boat, there's a storm. Jonah says, throw me into the water uh, because I know that God has sent this storm because I have disobeyed him. So the sailors throw Jonah in the water. Of course, a fish swallows him. And that's that part of the story. Now turn to Jonah chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. Jonah this time obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days for Jonah to go through it. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the first part, uh, Jonah 1 and 2, begins with God saying to Jonah, Jonah, go to the city, to that great city. And God is describing Nineveh. Uh, He's the one saying that great city Nineveh, um, and he says to Jonah that the, the evil there has become too much for me to bear. I can't bear it anymore. And so he sends Jonah, and this is very unique to the Old Testament. Uh, you don't see God sending a prophet or a preacher or even his people out like he does in the New Testament. Uh, it's because in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean God isn't a missionary God in the Old Testament. He has just set it up instead of Uh, sending his people to the world, he places his people in the center of the world and and brings the world to uh, God's people. Uh, But so here we have a unique situation where God says to Jonah, Jonah, go to that city. Now the city Nineveh is part of the empire, it's the capital city of Assyria. And we've talked a little bit about Assyria, but I think... um, it would be helpful if, if, if we knew just a little bit more. Do I use too many Lord of the Rings analogies or not? <laughs> I think I do, but that's okay. Um, because Assyria is a lot like the city of Mordor. What's Mordor? Dude, you know Mordor. What's Mordor? Yes, it's the place where the ring was forged, and it is a wicked (laughs) empire. Don't you love it? Yeah. (laughs) Assyria is like that. It's this far off, dark empire that is on the rise, that is slowly taking over the world. Its power the power that it wields as an empire is rooted in violence. And sadly, throughout history, if you know history, this is so true about empires and whether big or small, it's an empire mindset. Um, Empires become empires by getting power and then instilling fear in the people that it conquers and it rules. And so, the way that an empire keeps the masses of people that they rule in line is namely through fear and through human atrocities and purges and genocides and pogroms and holocausts. I mean, that's that's throughout history. In fact, in chapter three, verse eight, when Assyria, and I'm getting ahead of the story right now, Assyria is going to repent. And they're gonna repent of something very specific. In the Hebrew, it's called Hamas. Hamas simply means uh, violence through terror. And, and, and that so typifies uh, what Assyria uh, was. Um, the Assyrians, I think you could make the argument, might have been the most brutally cruel empire known to history. I'll just give you one for instance. For instance, when, when they were expanding their empire, And again, they they created this great war machine. Um, When they would come to a town or a city, they would surround that town or city with their army. uh, Right into the, they'd always approach the city late at night uh, so that the the city couldn't see, but they could hear. And what they would do throughout the whole night after they surrounded the city is they would torture 
victims from the previous town or city that they conquered. And the kind of torture that they would do is they would gouge out eyes, cut out tongues, they would cut off noses, cut off ears, but that's just the tame stuff. Uh, They'd literally take an axe and chop off hands, sometimes arms, sometimes feet, sometimes legs. And that's not even the bad stuff. (laughs) They would burn infants and children before their parents. Um, This was found on the reliefs of the the palace of some of these Assyrian kings. It's amazing the stuff that we find these days through archaeology. I think I gave it. Um, They love to just string people up and just slowly flay them. And then this, of course, is their ultimate torture. They're the first to invent the first forms of crucifixion, but rather than nailing people to a piece of wood, they'd take a long pole, shove it up a person's rectum, avoiding all the organs on the inside because they wanted the person to stay alive as long as possible, hopefully for days. And they'd just lift them high in the air and stake that pole in the ground. So the city would hear these screams and these all this agony throughout the night, then you'd wake up the next morning, you'd look outside the city walls, and you would just see these impaled victims and this army surrounding. And, and this is the kind of terror that they created. Um, now, when Jonah enters the scene, let me just show you a map here of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, if you look at the dark green up there, Again, that is a substantial, that's huge. That is the size of Assyria. Again, they're spreading, spreading, spreading all the way down to Damascus, which is just a half hour from Israel. Um, That's what it was in Jonah's time. Eventually, they're going to come through. They're going to take out Israel. They're even going to take out superpower Egypt. And they are going to be a, a, a mega power in the world. So you have to understand, let's get in Jonah's shoes here. God asking Jonah, because Jonah knows about a serious Hamas. Israel's been a victim of it. Hey, Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh. Call them to repent. This would be like asking a Jew during World War II uh, how, how about you go to Berlin, Germany and preach God to them and what you're doing is wrong. This is why when God says go east to Nineveh, Jonah goes west. And he doesn't just go west. He doesn't just go west to Joppa, which is modern day Tel Aviv. It's there where he's getting on a boat to go to Tarshish, which is... In their mind, the furthest place west a person can go. Now, we can look at the why, but I want to just start with the what. What Jonah is doing, not just the why. What this is, is rebellion. This is is flat-out rebellion towards God. Because rebellion is this. Rebellion is doing things my way instead of God's way. It's refusing to surrender the control of my life to God. Some of us are in that place. Some of us right now are on a boat going to Tarshish. Some of us right now are in Joppa. We're in a place where we know we're not supposed to be here. We're dabbling in things. We're looking at things. We're we're doing things. And I think so often we, we are like Jonah because what Jonah is doing here is he's in his mind playing this game. I can manage just a little rebellion, just a little rebellion in my life, a little white lie here, a little dabble here, a little of that creeping in. And see, Jonah thought he could manage this. He thought he was in control. But what Jonah's managed rebellion led to, at some point, this thing just unravels and spins out of control. And some of you right now are wondering the same thing. Why is my life spinning out of control? You can't 
manage a little rebellion, even a little rebellion towards God. Self-sovereignty and rebellion towards God over time will lead to your life spinning out of control. But here's the deal. God loves Jonah. God is gonna relentlessly pursue Jonah. This is why God sends a storm. This is why God is gonna send a whale. Uh, this, this is why Jonah's life, though, as it goes into the pit, three days, three nights, in the belly of death, three in the Bible, symbolizes what? Well, before I get to that, while you think about that, what happened to Jonah in the belly? 2 verse 2, Jonah 2 verse 2, Jonah says, I cried from the belly of Sheol. <laughs> Sheol in the Bible is the place of the dead. It's, it's a word for the grave. Jonah says, I cried from that place. I cried from the grave. 2 verse 6 literally reads, the waters brought death to me. Jonah died. But see, the three in the Bible always symbolizes restoration and resurrection. It's all over your Bible. In fact, it's in even Jonah 3, verse 3, where Jonah does a three-day walk across the city. That, that number three foreshadows the restoration that's going to take place in Nineveh. And here's the deal. Three, for, 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 for Jonah to be re resurrected, and this is also from cover to cover in the Bible, there first must be what? A death. And I guess you could say this is the Jonah principle. Fast forward to Jesus. When Jesus uh, is doing his ministry, people are begging Jesus, Jesus, give us a sign, give us a sign, show us a wonder. Jesus says, I'm not gonna give you a sign. Except one, the sign of Jonah. For three days and three nights, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, and that's all Jesus says, and they knew, because of what they knew about the number three, not just that the Son of Man would die, but that he'd be raised. And again, I think the Jonah principle is the Christ principle, which is found throughout the whole Bible, that life, that real life, is birthed out of death. That true strength is always birthed out of weakness. That, that true beauty is always birthed out of ashes. That is an awesome reality. That should give some of us hope right already this morning. Okay, now we come to the last two chapters, chapters three and four, and look at verses three and four. We didn't read this. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. He went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Again, there's that number three. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh, Nineveh will be destroyed. <laughs> What's his message? I mean, it's unbelievably simplistic. Nineveh, in 40 days, you're going to stand before the Lord face to face and you're going to have to give an account for your wickedness. In other words, repent. And how does Nineveh respond? That stupid Israelite, someone cut his tongue out. This. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. The whole city was brought to its knees, from the greatest to the least. Look at verse six. When the, when the warning, when the Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. 
go find that man so I can rip his head off. No, he took off his royal robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat down in the dust. And this is the issue that he proclaimed by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let them urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their Hamas. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so, he will, so we will not perish. If you want to know how the ancient world repented, um, it wasn't just with their mouth. And, and you see it here, it, from the whole city's first response to the king then issuing the decree, it starts with a fast. Now, I don't know, always know why Christians fast. I think a lot of times when, when I ask people why they fast, a lot of times the, the answer I get is they want something from God. It's like they want to turn God into the genie of the bottle. And fasting is the way where they can just kind of rub the bottle and get God to give them what they want. That's not why the ancient world fasted. The ancient world fasted to show the degree of their grief, to feel the depth of their depravity before a holy God. And it's not just why they fasted. They, they also uh, put on sackcloth, which were literally rags. They'd walk around in rags, and a lot of times what they'd do is they'd take dust and put it over their head so it would fall down on their rags. And sometimes they would even take ashes um, and, and just, just cover their, their body with that. And they would walk around as a as a sign, God. It's not just I'm sorry and I grieve. I grieve. I grieve over what these hands have done. It's literally in the text. The Hamas. But it's I turn from. I turn from it. I give it up. I lay it down. I bury it. I come humbly back to you knowing that you are worthy to do whatever you need to do. Now you could call chapter three in Jonah almost a textbook revival. What is revival? I wanna know what revival is, don't you? Don't you want revival? I want revival. So then if we want revival, what is it? Revival is an outpouring of God's spirit, come spirit, which results in abhorrence towards personal sin. It's where sin can't be tolerated anymore in a person's life. And there's this overflowing delight in the goodness, grace, and presence of God. Doesn't that feel right? I mean, is this needed today? Well, I, I, I attempted to answer that question just for myself. Is, is, is revival needed in just my life? And here's how I would answer that question. Revival is needed when passionate worship and prayer is no longer a vital part of my life. Revival is needed when a hunger for God's word ceases and I become content with a sermon. Revival is needed when becoming more like Jesus no longer matters to me. Revival is needed when my faith in Christ is more about getting things and less about giving and serving. Revival is needed when I have a greater desire to pursue the things of this world, food, houses, cars, vacations, pleasure, social standing, over and above the pursuit of the living God. Revival is needed when injustice and human misery exist all around me and I do nothing about it. Revival is needed when the eternal destiny of my neighbor ceases to move me. What if someone came in here today and said, 40 days, 
we're all gonna stand before God face to face. I was at a funeral last Sunday right in this room for a 32-year-old young man. We don't know when we're gonna stand face to face before God. But here's the deal. Repentance is not just something that's needed for the next life. Repentance is something that's needed for this life because if you and I truly want the abundant life, if we really want to know the joy of the Lord, if we really want to experience the, the very one for whom we are made that our hearts crave, our heavenly Father, and being in his arms, we only experience that through Repentance. Repentance is what brings us into the arms of our Father. And people ask sometimes, okay, well, was this just a flash in the pan? I mean, what, what, what really happened here in Nineveh? Well, I think the best place to answer, let's, let's let Jesus answer that question because Jesus will show up and he will say to his generation in Luke 11, verse 32, he said, the men of Nineveh, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here, and you haven't repented. And I hear so many Christians today bemoaning our world, bemoaning our nation, bemoaning our city, bemoaning our schools, bemoaning our neighborhoods, all these things. Here's the deal, we can't control our nation, we can't control our city. We can't even control the person sitting next to us right now, but guess what? All of us right now can control our own self. Will you and I repent? Then we come to chapter four. (laughs) Now we get a window into the prophet's soul, which is really a window into the people of God at this time. God shows compassion on Nineveh. God forgives Nineveh. In Jonah's response to this, yes! <laughs> that woke you up, didn't it? Four verse one. Your Bible says he became angry. It literally reads, he burned. He burned inside. He burned with anger. And I can, I can kind of guess what's going on in Jonah's mind. Like, God, don't you see the reputation of this people and their unthinkable violence, the way in which they've tortured and humiliated thousands of people? How dare you turn from your anger? How dare you not send fire down upon them and send them all to hell? That's what's going on in Jonah's heart. And see, Jonah also knows God's heart, and we see this in in the thing that he prays in 4 verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall. This is why I fled to Tarshish. Because I knew you, God. I knew that you were a gracious and a Passionate God, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, in loyal love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew a God. I, I knew when you would see one person putting on sackcloth, your heart would melt. And the reason Jonah knew this is not just because he just assumed this about God as Jonah actually knows the word of God. And this is all over the New Old Testament. It's in the Psalms. It's, it's when Moses says, God, I wanna, know, I wanna see your face. And God says, you can't see my face, Moses, but I'll put you in a cleft in a rock and I'll pass by on your backside. And, and so Moses is in the cleft of the rock and as God passed by, God says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. 
Jonah has utter contempt, hatred for the heart of God. And this isn't just, God, I don't want to partner with a God like you. This is, God, I don't want to live in a universe ruled by a God like you. Jonah would rather die than see God's grace poured out on this foreign nation. Look at the next verse, verse five. Verse three, now Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. So what does Jonah do? Well, verse five says that Jonah moves outside the city, (laughs) sets up this comfortable spot, gives himself some shade, probably created a little bit of a tent-like structure. And what's he doing here? Well, he's not just going outside the city to pout. He's not just uh, setting up camp to enjoy some comfort. Uh, but it's more like it's, he's got a Coke in hand, popcorn in the other hand, and he's still waiting. There could be fireworks here or not. And I think this shows how far removed a prophet of God, who I think reflects the people of God at this time, have actually moved from the heart of God. Because if you go back to the beginning of the story, God and Abraham... And you remember Abraham, how he dealt with that wicked city. When God said, I'm going to send my justice down on wicked Sodom, did Abraham said, yes, that's good. No, Jake, Abraham went right into what we call priest mode because a priest is an advocate and he became an advocate for wicked Sodom and he stood before the God of the universe in humility. He said, I'm nothing but dust and ashes, but how dare you as the judge of the world bring fire down on that, on that city? And Jonah is so far removed from this. Jonah is just the opposite. He is a son of Abraham. And so Jonah goes out, he creates this really comfortable spot where he can sit outside the discomfort of of being in that wicked city of Nineveh. And God, how does he respond to this? Verse six, God appoints a vine, just like he appointed a storm, just like he appointed a whale. Now God appoints a vine. He appoints this vine to miraculously grow up for the single purpose of adding more comfort to Jonah's already comfort that he's created. But it's more than that. Because God is a God who speaks in pictures and the Hebrews are a people that understand and make sense of truth through pictures. And the vine is a picture that God has given his people over and over again uh, to say, Israel, this is what you are. You are to be a vine. Psalm 80, God says, I plucked a vine out of Egypt and I then cleared the ground in this special place and I planted my special vine so that it would take root and it would grow and it would provide shade for the nations. Israel, as I was shade to you, you are to be shade to the world. Isaiah 5, God says, Israel, you are my serac, my choice vine that I planted in the ground and I planted it so that you would, would, would provide fruit. Fruit not just for yourselves, but fruit for the nations. And when I came to see the fruit that you were bearing, I looked for mishpat, justice. But all I saw was mishpak, bloodshed. I looked for tzedakah, generosity and mercy. And all I heard was zedakah, the cries of the oppressed. What God is doing with this vine is he is screaming at Jonah. Who are you, dude? What are you doing here? Are you, who are we? 
What are we doing here? Are we Jonas? Clinging to our comfort? Are we Abraham's? Do you love lost people? Or do you despise them? Do you advocate for the people of the world who need God? Or do you just neglect and avoid them? See, God uses this vine to expose Jonah's heart because look at Jonah's response to the vine in verse six. It says, in the vine that God caused to grow made Jonah exceedingly happy. He's ecstatic. This is the happiest we see Jonah in the whole book. Over what? A silly vine. Something that just adds to his comfort. What makes you exceedingly happy today? We all have our vines, don't we? And here's the deal, God will send us vines and then he'll also do what he sends next. He appoints a vine, but then the next day he appoints a worm which eats the vine. God gives, God takes away to expose what's really in our hearts. Because then when you look at how Jonah responds when God takes the vine away, verse nine, he falls back into that place where he is fuming mad. He is burning with anger and he wants to die. Why? His comfort was taken away. In this, God just exposed Jonah's heart. Jonah, do you see what makes you happy? Look at how much you love that vine. How happy it made you. And how it devastated you when it was taken away. Hey, Jonah, answer the question, what's more important? That little vine of yours or those 120,000 people in Nineveh? And this is how the book ends. It ends with the Lord speaking. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? You're concerned about that vine? God says, I'm concerned about this city. I, I hate to just say this about the NIV translation here, but, but, but they just kind of butcher it with the word concerned because that word concerned there means to have this intense grief over. It's, it, 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 it's the kind of grief that someone experiences when they lose a loved one to death. And God is saying, you're, do you see your heart, Jonah? Do, do you see what makes you happy, what makes you sad, what, 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 what causes you to grieve? I'll tell you what my heart grieves over. And I understand they're wicked. They've done horrible things. But just like that vine that I caused to grow, I grew that city. I made those people. I love them. And Jonah, you're my partner. Why don't you love them? Why don't we love them? And why do we love our vines so much? 
Why are we so attached to the trivial things of this world? Listen, whatever is Nineveh to us today, whoever or whatever we throw in the bucket of wicked, we need to understand something that Jonah forgot. Jonah forgot this, and this is key to the whole thing. Jonah forgot he was a sinner saved by God's grace. And we need to understand We are no better than anyone on the face of the earth. We are no better than a terrorist. We are no better than a rapist, a drug addict, a homeless drunk, a prostitute, a trafficker. We're no better than ISIS, Hamas, a Wall Street person. We are all sinners, all of us. We all have that in common. But we're sinners saved by grace. And here's the deal, God doesn't care. He doesn't care about titles. He doesn't care about labels. He doesn't care about appearances. He doesn't care about who's in, who's out. He doesn't care about who's good. He doesn't care about who's bad. What God cares about is one thing. It's the human heart. He says the issues of life, they flow out of the heart. And Jonah's heart is rotten. And I'll tell you what that vine and that worm expose. It it exposes a self-absorbed heart. Jonah shows us the characteristics of a self-absorbed person. Self-absorbed people are angry. They're angry at God. They're angry at people. They're angry at life. They constantly play the poor me victim card. Look at Jonah. It's all over the whole story. Self-absorbed people are critical and judgmental. This comes from Jonah thinking he's better than everyone, that he's right about everything. (laughs) He even says to God uh, in in verse four, verse chapter four, verse one, he says, God, you know what? You you, you were wrong (laughs) and I was right. Self-absorbed people only care about themselves. I mean, look at him in verse five and six. He's demanding his own personal comfort as a whole city is threatened with being destroyed. Self-absorbed people have a strong sense of entitlement. I mean, Jonah is so ungrateful in spite of having so much. God has been so good to him. God has been so good to us. Every day we have is a gift. Every breath we breathe, it is a gift. Self-absorbed people can never admit that they're wrong, even when it appears that they are wrong, because Even then, they're the victim of someone else's wrong. Hey, Jonah, do you really have a right to be angry? God asked him that two times. You know how how Jonah should have responded to that question? God, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Do you know Jonah in this whole, whole story never says, I'm sorry. Self-absorbed people have very distorted thinking. They lose perspective about the smallest things like a little vine. And they can't see the massive thing like a whole city repenting. He should have been celebrating the big thing. Instead, he's crying over the small thing. It's because self-absorbed people are out of touch with reality. They're out of touch with themselves. They're out of touch with others. They're out of touch with God. Which leads to something very devastating for self-absorbed people, aloneness. Jonah's alone. He's in isolation. And we all desperately need people who can speak wisdom into our lives. Jonah doesn't have that. And self-absorbed people are also self-righteous people. They can't see their sin. They can't admit their sin. 
and they always have to be their own savior, which is why self-absorbed people over time will always self-destruct. Two times Jonah says, I want to die. He is in total despair because the descent into hell is when we descend too far into ourselves and we can't get out. And oh, what a hellish place. It's no wonder we're watching so many people self-destruct these days. We're reaping the fruit of our self-absorption. Because here's the deal. If you lose something and then you lose all hope, that thing was your hope. If you lose something that causes you to feel like you're nothing, then that thing was your everything. This is why Jonah's life has lost all meaning. It's because he lost his real God. Jonah's real God is not God. Jonah's real God is what he says in the earlier chapters. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Christian. I'm a prophet of God. And see, when your identity and your sense of worth is found in this moral and spiritual superiority that you have to other races and cultures and religions, when you start thinking that you are better than the rest of the world, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a Christian. Some scary stuff. Because what does this mean? Jonah's the most lost person in this whole story. There are lost people here today, right now. Our churches are filled with lost people. Lost, good, moral, religious Christians. People who are lost in their self-righteousness. But that's the bad news. Let me end with the good news. God never gives up on Jonah. He never gives up on self-righteous people. This is why God will send storms, why he will send a whale, why he sends vines, why he sends worms. It's to just chase after our hearts to remind us of the gospel that we're desperately lost Uh, if we're left to our own, but we're so incredibly loved in God through Christ that God is a God who won't give up on wicked Nineveh and he won't give up on self-righteous Jonah. And he sends a lot more than storms and fish and vines and worms. You keep reading into the biblical story and eventually he's gonna send his own son And Jesus is gonna show up and he's gonna say, one greater than Jonah is here. And Jesus, he came to our world and he wept and he grieved over the lost and he wept when he saw people in chaos and he even grieved over the own city that would crucify him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you in my arms. And like Jonah, He said to his father, you throw me into the storm. And God hurled his son in the storm of death, the storm of the curse, all God's anger towards all sin. God just threw him into that. It swallowed him up, even hell itself. But in being swallowed up, think about this. Jesus swallowed it. He swallowed the curse. He swallowed death itself. He swallowed everything that plagues us. He swallowed even hell. And how do we receive all of this? George Whitfield said there are two things that everyone uh, must do if they're going to receive the healing love of God. He said, first, you need to repent of your sin. 
And for some of us, our life is in Nineveh. Repent. Whitfield said the second thing is, you must repent of your righteousness, your self-righteousness, because he said self-righteousness is the last idol that needs to be plucked out of our heart before we truly become a Christian. It's when we turn from trusting ourselves, trusting our own goodness, our own righteousness, our own performance, and we look to him, we say, nothing in these hands I bring, simply to you, to your righteousness, your performance. Simply to the cross I cling. That's my righteousness. You know what the Ninevites show us in the story? As wicked as they are, guts. They had the guts. They had the guts to repent. The guts. Do we have the guts to repent? What a way this morning to turn from our wickedness, our self righteousness, and to turn to Christ. God, thank you for the cross. That's our shade, God. That's the shade that you give us. It covers us, it cleanses us. It protects us. And that's the shade, God, that you call us to be to this world. God, there will be no revival without massive repentance. God, may there be repentance in this place. May your Holy Spirit be unleashed upon us, be unleashed upon our hearts. And I know there's no sackcloth or ashes, but God, let us grieve, grieve. Let us return 